0: Open our Bibles together at this time too. The book of Acts chapter fifteen and verse nineteen. Acts fifteen nineteen for our message from God's Word this morning. You'll find Acts fifteen nineteen on page eleven seventy if you're using the church Bible. Today's date is November 27th, 2022, if you're watching years from now, and our text this morning will be in Acts fifteen nineteen through verse 29. And the title of this morning's message is, The Decision of the Jerusalem Council. The Decision of the Jerusalem Council. And we begin with the story of a young man who stood up in church during announcements one Sunday. And he said, my wife and I have made a difficult decision. We've decided that we don't want children So if any of you do, we can drop them off at your house after church. All right, then there's the story of a man who made the decision to learn to pick locks. He said it had opened a lot of doors for him. I figured that, so I got one more. A lot of people are unhappy with the government's decision to legalize marijuana. But I want you to know that that decision was made by a high government official. <laughs> I know, should have kept quit after the first one, right? Okay. Well, speaking of decisions and especially of official decisions like the one made by that high government official, here in Acts chapter 15, the Jewish kingdom church in Jerusalem convened a council to decide if the Gentiles that the apostle Paul had led to the Lord had to keep the law in order to be saved. And James, the new leader of the church, is now ready to give the official decision of the Jerusalem Council, as we see in Acts 15, 19, where James says, Wherefore, my sentence is that we trouble not those Gentiles, which from among the Gentiles are turned to God. Now, before we talk about the decision that James is rendering here, we need to talk about how we know we can trust the decision that James is rendering here. Because if we can't, then you're not saved by grace without the law like you think you are. And the reason I'm asking if James can be trusted is because this past week I was listening to a tape of the first time I taught the book of Acts about 40 years ago, and I heard myself say that James was a usurper who had no business replacing Peter as the new leader of the kingdom church. Now, do you know what a usurper is? It's somebody who seizes an office illegitimately. And when I heard I called James a usurper, I remembered why I called him that. It's because Pastor Stam call James a usurper in his commentary on the book of Acts. And while I really thank, I can't thank God enough for Pastor Stam's um, his influence in my life personally and his pioneering work in the grace message, I can tell you this. He would be the first to tell us to build on what he taught us. And I now know we can trust James's decision because in your first reference, the Apostle Paul didn't call James a usurper. Look what Paul called him in Galatians 1, 18 and 19, where he says, I went to see Peter, but other of the apostles saw I none. Save James, the Lord's brother. Well, do you see how that verse is calling James an apostle? Now He wasn't one of the twelve apostles. He He was what we call an apostle in a secondary sense. But he was an apostle. And Paul wrote that in Galatians 1 by inspiration of the Holy Spirit of God. Well, that means the Holy Spirit thought Paul was an apostle. And as we talked about last Sunday, God himself must have thought James was an apostle, or he wouldn't have let James write an epistle in the Bible. Now You might be thinking, well, yeah, but that doesn't prove that James should have replaced Peter as the leader of the twelve apostles and the the head honcho of the church, the guy who could make official decisions for the church. And that's true, but look what Peter himself called James in Acts, or said about James I should say, in Acts 12, 16 and 17. Now what's happened there in Acts 12 is an angel just busted Peter out of of prison. (laughs) And Peter's talking to the disciples, and he said, Go show these things unto James and to the brethren. Well, if Peter didn't recognize that James was the new leader of the church, he would have just said, Go tell the brethren about this, right? And finally, in your next reference, we know Paul recognized that James had the authority to make official decisions because in Galatians 2, nine, when James, Cephas, that's Peter, and John received the grace given unto me, they gave to me and Barnabas the right hands of fellowship that we should go to the heathen and they would go to the circumcision. Now, I doubt that Paul would have shook hands with James, and made that agreement with James if he thought James had no authority to make official decisions and agreements like that. You know, from that verse there, you can even tell that Paul thought James was the leader of the 12 apostles because he mentions James first out of those three apostles, even before he mentions Peter. Now, I want you to compare that to how the Bible mentions Peter and John 18 times in the Bible. And you know who's always mentioned first? Take a guess. (laughs) Peter! You know why he's always mentioned first? Because he was the head honcho of the Twelve Apostles. And he deserved top billing. And when James... I'm sorry. And when Paul mentions James before Peter there in Galatians 2.9, it shows he recognized that James is the new head honcho, the top dog, the big enchilada, the big cheese. Oh, wait a minute, that sounds like Wisconsin. We don't want to encourage any Green Bay Packer fans here. But listen, all of that proves there was a new sheriff in town, and it was James. And the bottom line is we know we can trust the decision that James made because he made the right decision. In verse 19 there when he said that the Gentiles shouldn't be troubled to have to keep the law to be saved. We know that was the right decision because it agrees with what Paul teaches us in his epistles. And he's the apostle of the Gentiles. All right, having rendered that decision, there was something that James was concerned about. Something he talks about in verse 20 in your Bible, where he says, Well, we don't have to trouble them, but we should write unto them that they abstain from pollutions of idols and from fornication. and from things strangled, and from blood. James says, well, they don't have to keep the law, but they should abstain from these things. But the question here is, why would James think the Gentiles would have to be told not to worship idols? (laughs) I mean, in order to get saved... They must have done what the Thessalonians did in your next reference when they got saved. Paul reminded the Thessalonians he turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God. Well, if that's what these Gentiles did too, why would James think they would go back to worshiping idols if they turned to God from idols? (laughs) Well, I can't be sure, but I think it was because James knew that throughout the Old Testament, the Jews combined the worship of God with the worship of idols. Look at your next reference where a Jewish woman said in Judges 17.3, I dedicated the silver unto the Lord to make a graven image and a molten image. <laughs> now, did you catch that? She de- she dedicated money to the true God to make an idol to a false God. Something the Bible says not to do. And if you know your Bible, you know that went on throughout the Old Testament. In spite of what James decided... About us here in us Gentiles here in Acts 15. Okay, now that we know why James had to tell them not to worship idols, why would he have to tell them in verse 19 to abstain from fornication? I mean, wouldn't you think that any believer would know that fornication's wrong? Well, I think that James thought if we tell the Gentiles they're not under the law what's going to keep them from sinning? I think that he thought what a lot of Christians still think today that grace is a license to sin. And I think that The, well, actually, I know in your next reference, that's what the Corinthians thought. Because Paul had to write them and say in 1 Corinthians 5 there's fornication among you, and you are puffed up and have not rather mourned. Instead of being sorry that one of their members had fallen into fornication, they were. Puffed up with pride about it because they thought grace was a license to sin. They thought God had given them a religion that was much more advanced than he gave the Jews with that stodgy old law that said you couldn't commit fornication. James saw that kind of thinking coming. So here he says... You're not under the law, but abstain from fornication. And as we saw in our scripture reading this morning, the Apostle Paul saw that coming too, didn't he? That's why he dealt with it in Romans chapter 6. After talking for five chapters about how we're saved by grace without the law. Listen, folks, you should abstain from any and all sin that gives the grace of God that saved you a bad name. Amen? Amen. But there in verse 20, why would James also say that they should abstain from things strangled? Well, if you strangle an animal in order to kill and eat it, instead of slitting its blood and letting its blood drain out, you end up eating blood. And the law of Moses said not to eat blood. But that raises another question. Why would James tell him not to eat blood if he was agreeing that the Gentiles weren't under the law? Is he saying they still have to keep Some of the law, even though... (laughs) That's what a lot of Christians today say, you know. They know that they can't deny what Paul says in Romans 6, that we're not under the law but under grace. But they still want to put you under some laws, like the not eating blood one. But listen, as we read on, the next verse does not say that they shouldn't eat blood because the law says they shouldn't eat blood. Verse 21 says they shouldn't eat blood for Moses of old time hath in every city them that preach him being read in the synagogues every Sabbath day. James is telling those Gentiles not to eat blood because it would offend Jews who were still under the law and went to the synagogue every Sabbath day to hear the law. Now, if that kind of reasoning sounds familiar, it should. Because it's what our Apostle Paul tells us in Romans 14, verses 14 to 18. He says there is nothing unclean of itself. And he's been talking about meat. Well, there used to be plenty of meats that were unclean under the law, right? Not anymore. Not under grace. But... If thy brother, your Jewish brother or somebody else, is grieved with thy meat, now walkest thou not charitably. Let not then your good be evil spoken of. For the kingdom of God is not meat and drink. The kingdom of God used to involve meat and drink, but it doesn't anymore. He that in these things serveth Christ is acceptable to God and approved of men. Now, what Paul is saying there is that if you exercise your right to eat blood, you're acceptable to God. But if you lovingly, charitably give up your right to eat blood or other forbidden foods by the law, If you give up that right in front of somebody who thinks you shouldn't eat blood, well, then you're acceptable to God and you're acceptable to men. You're not offending God and you're not offending men. And that's what James is saying here in verse 21 as well. That's the decision of the Jerusalem Council. And now that the decision's been reached by the council, all that's left to do is let the Gentiles know about it. (laughs) So in verse 22, that's what they do. Then pleased it the elders, I'm sorry, the apostles and elders with the whole church to send chosen men of their own company to Antioch with Paul and Barnabas, namely... Judas, surnamed Barsabbas, not Judas, surnamed Iscariot. This is another guy named Judas. Judas, surnamed Barsabbas, <clears throat> and Silas, chief men among the brethren. Now, when it says they're going to send these guys with Paul and Barnabas to Antioch there, you remember that Antioch was where Paul had led quite a few Gentiles to the Lord, right? But listen, word had gotten out to a lot of other areas, and he talks about them in verse 23. Verse 23, it says they wrote letters by Judas and Silas. They wrote letters by them after this manner. The, you know how every epistle Paul starts with his name? That's the, we, we sign our names at the end of the letter. They did at the beginning. The, appel, <laughs> the apostles and elders and brethren send greeting unto the brethren which are of the Gentiles in Antioch and in Syria and Cilicia. Now, There is an astounding phrase there in that verse that you really shouldn't gloss over. You see where it says, the brethren which are among the Gentiles? (laughs) Do you know that for the 2,000 years before that, you would never catch Jews like these calling Gentiles brethren? It would have been like having the Ku Klux Klan call a black man brother. But now a revolutionary dispensational change had taken place with the ministry of the Apostle Paul. And now all believers, Jews and Gentiles, black and white, were brethren in the Lord. And as we read on in the next four verses, we see what those Jewish brethren said to their new Gentile brethren, beginning in verse 24. They said, "...forasmuch as we have heard that certain men which went out from us have troubled you with words..." Go home and read the beginning of this chapter again and you'll see what he's talking about. Certain Jews went out from Jerusalem and went to Antioch and these other places troubling these Gentiles with words, subverting your souls, saying ye must be circumcised and keep the law to whom we gave no such commandment. Those Jews might have come from Jerusalem, but they did not come from us. They didn't come with any authority to tell you that from us. But for as much as it happened, verse 25, it says, It seemed good unto us, being assembled with one accord in this council, to send chosen men unto you with our beloved Barnabas and Paul men that have hazarded their lives for the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. We have sent, therefore, Judas and Silas, who shall also tell you the same things that we're telling you in this letter by mouth. Now, back up in verse 24, when it says those Jews had troubled those Gentiles with words, you remember when you were a kid and you said, Sticks and stones can break my bones, but words what? <laughs> can never hurt me. Well, that's true, I guess. Words can't hurt you physically. But according to that, they can trouble your soul. And the words you have to keep the law are very troubling to Gentiles who are saved by grace like us, aren't they? When somebody told the Galatians that they had to keep the law, Paul used that same word in Galatians 1, 4-7. He said, God called you into the grace of Christ, but there be some that trouble you and would pervert the gospel of Christ. The Gentiles had been saved by the gospel of the grace of God. But some troublemakers had perverted the gospel of grace by telling them they had to keep the law. And if you want to know how Paul felt about it, well, he threw that trouble right back at them in your next reference in Galatians 5, 10 and 12. He that troubleth you shall bear his judgment whosoever he be. I would they were even cut off, which... Trouble you. Keeps using that word, trouble. Because that's what the law spells for grace believers. Trouble. And when Paul says, whoever that is that's bringing you that message, he'll bear his judgment. It kind of reminds me of what Maud used to say to her husband on the TV show. Remember that? God will get you for that, Walter. Remember that? Anybody remember? How many remember Maud? You don't remember Maud? Okay, a few of you do. All right when it says in verse 24 that those Jewish troublemakers subverted the souls of those Gentiles, grace believers, I looked that word subvert up in the dictionary, my good dictionary, and it means to turn aside. And that's what it means in the Bible too. Look at Lamentations 3, 35 and 36. To turn aside the right of a man before the face of the most high to subvert a man and his cause just two ways the same the same thing the Lord approveth not. See how that verse defines the word subvert as to, to turn aside. And those troublemakers had subverted the Gentiles spiritually. By telling them, they had to turn aside from grace to the law. And I can guarantee you the Lord didn't approve of that either. And what you're seeing is a major dispensational change from what God told the Jews to do in Joshua 23.6. He told them, do all that is written in the book of the law of Moses and what? Turn not aside therefrom, excuse me, to the right hand or to the left. God told the Jews to keep the law and not to turn aside from the law. So the spiritual perversion in those days meant turning away from the law. These days, today it means turning to the law from grace. Do you know what the answer to the subversion of the law is for grace believers? Timothy, in your next reference, he must have had the same problem where he was pastoring, uh, the same problem with the law, because Paul uses that same word subvert when he told Timothy, in 2 Timothy 2.14 and 15, Strive not about words, somebody's troubling you with words, to no profit but to the subverting of the hearers. What's the answer? Study to show thyself approved unto God, a workman that needs not be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. The answer to the perversion of the law is rightly dividing the word of truth. It's the only answer to the law because the law is in the word of truth, right? Right? You just have to remember that not everything in the word of truth is about you. If you don't rightly divide the word, you can't know what spiritual perversion is in the dispensation of grace. And the countless pastors that don't know that, they can't know what spiritual perversion is. How serious that is. Well, verse 24 ends by telling those Gentiles that the Jewish leaders had not given those men any commandment to tell those Gentiles that they had to be under the law. But since they did, the Jewish leaders in Jerusalem decided in verse 25 there to send some men with Paul and Barnabas to tell the Gentiles by mouth what they were writing here in this letter. And when verse 26 calls Judas and Silas men who have hazarded their lives for the name of the Lord, let me ask you a question. Who do you think used to threaten their lives before he got saved? Saul of Tarsus. Paul, before he got saved. You know, the guy who was going to be their bunkmate on this trip. to Antioch and those other areas. i got to tell you, you'd think that Judas and Silas would sleep with one eye open, knowing they had a killer named Paul sleeping next to them. But you know what I know. Paul knew that salvation had melted the murderer's heart of Saul of Tarsus. They didn't have anything to to fear from him anymore. Now, The leaders finished their letter in the next two verses, the last two verses of our text, in verses 28 and 29. For it seemed good to the Holy Ghost and to us to allay upon you no greater burden than these necessary things, that ye abstain from meats offered to idols and from blood and from things strangled and from fornication from which if ye keep yourselves ye shall do well fare ye well now back up in verse 28 we have to stop and ask how did they know what seemed good to the Holy Ghost (laughs) it seemed good to the Holy Ghost to lay upon you no greater burden than well Do you remember what the Holy Ghost did when Peter preached to a a Gentile named Cornelius in your next reference? If you forgot, look what Peter told Cornelius about the Lord in Acts 10, 43-46. Through His name, whosoever believeth in His name shall receive remission of sins. And while Peter yet spake these words, the Holy Ghost fell on all them which heard the word. And the way they knew that he fell on them is they heard them speak with tongues. In other words, as soon as Peter gets done talking about believing on the Lord, they got saved without the law. And the Holy Ghost fell on them to prove they'd gotten saved without the law. And that's how the council knew that it seemed good to the Holy Ghost not to burden the Gentiles with having to keep the law. Don't forget, Peter had told the council about his visit to Cornelius and James found that very, very convincing. Well, the letter ends in verse 29 by telling them to abstain from all those things we talked about. But did you notice there's a a little bit of a change there? In verse 29, he told them to abstain from meats that were offered to idols. Now, that's not what he said back up in verse 20. Look across the page in your Bible to verse 20 where James says that we're going to write unto them that they abstain from pollutions of idols. Here it just talks about messing with pollutions of idols. But listen, one of the ways that men worshipped idols was by eating the meat that was offered to them. Pagans loved to imitate the Jews, folks. Satan made sure of that. And pagans worship their idols the same way the Jews worship God. Jews would sacrifice an animal on the altar and then let their priests eat the meat, right? Well, pagans worship God, their idols, the same way. They'd, they'd sacrifice an animal on the altar and then let pretty much anybody eat the meat. <laughs> and they tell me that that's still done today. Idols are still worshipped by sacrificing animals to them, and I don't know if that's true or not. But I do know what Paul says about eating the meat offered to idols in your next reference, First Corinthians 10, 27, 28. He says, if any of them which believe not, some pagan idol worshiper bids you to a feast and you want to go, go. And when you get there, whatsoever is set before you eat, asking no questions for conscience' sake. Because you know under grace you can eat it. But if any man say unto you, this is offered in sacrifice to idols, obviously it's bothering him. So what does Paul say to do about that? Eat not for his sake that showed it. In other words, Paul says the same thing that James said earlier, right? Right? That it's okay to eat things that used to be forbidden under the law just as long as it doesn't offend believers who would be bothered by it. But, look what else Paul told the Corinthians in your last reference in 1 Corinthians 10.28-30. Eat not for his sake that showed it, and for conscience sake, conscience, I say, not thine own, you know you can eat it, but of the other guy. For why is my liberty judged of another man's conscience? For if I by grace be a partaker, why am I evil spoken of for that which I give thanks? Thanks. Paul says that grace gives us the liberty to partake of things that the law forbids. You can eat those things with a crystal clear conscience. I told you before, I eat these lobster cake thingies that I get from this store in Wisconsin. They're just out of this world yummy. <laughs> By now, I'm usually tired of a No, dude. And my conscience doesn't bother me a bit. But Paul also calls on us to be mindful of the conscience of other believers. Just this past week, I hear from believers who have issues with this all the time. Just this past week, I heard from a grace believer, young grace believer obviously, who thinks that you shouldn't eat lobster or pork because he thinks they're unhealthy and he thinks that's why God told the Jews not to eat them. Well, they might be unhealthy or not. I don't know. The Bible doesn't say. But the Bible does say why God told the Jews not to eat them and that ain't the reason. (laughs) But now, the way to convince this brother of that isn't by taking him to lunch at Northwoods, opening the Bible, talking to him about grace, while chowing down on some baby death ribs. Because if you do that, you give him a reason to speak evil of grace. You know, the world says, let your conscience be your guide. And they think that is living on the highest plane imaginable. But it isn't. Paul says to let your brother's conscience be your guide. Now you're talking about living on a high spiritual plane. Amen? Amen. You know what I always say about that song. If you like singing, Lord, plant my feet on higher ground. Just remember, it's a prayer. And you're praying to live like that. If the grace of God that saved you means anything to you though, that's that's the plane you're going to want to live on. Amen? You know, in closing... Have you noticed how a lot of the Bears players, I'm watching the Bears this year as always, uh, on the back of their helmets they've got end racism. Many years ago, a black missionary from South Africa uh, called us at BBS one day to tell us he was in town and he wanted to come visit us. But he said he was going to be arriving late and he needed a place to stay. So, on the phone, I told him, well, you can bunk with me, but by the time you get here, I'm going to be asleep. So, just go to the motel. I'll leave room key at the desk and let yourself in. Try not to wake me up when you're getting into bed. Well, it all went very smoothly, but the next week, As I was telling the midweek Bible study here about it, I made it all sound real dramatic. I said, Last week, while I was asleep in my motel room, a black man entered my motel room. (laughs) So I did what any white man would do, and I paused for effect. And somebody in the congregation said, you hid under the bed? (laughs) And I said, no. I turned over and went back to sleep. He might have been a complete stranger to me. He was. Never met him before. But I did not sleep with one eye open. As I would have done with a white stranger too, by the way because I knew that grace of God had made him my brother in Christ. And I didn't have a thing to fear from him. You know, I don't know what the answer to racism is. The only answer is the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's thank God for that. Heavenly Father, we thank you profoundly for the brotherhood we have in Christ. And now that we've seen the roots, the origins of our liberty in Christ, we thank you for that as well. We do pray, Father, that we'd ever be mindful, not just of those things that we talked about here, but about everything in our lives, that we bring no offense, no reproach on the grace of God that has saved us. And we pray it in the Savior's name. Amen.